So, uh, just to bring you a little up to date on the Jackson Appliance <laughs> extravaganza, um, many of you know that nine weeks ago our fridge stopped working and then our hot water heater. So, anyways, a whole lot of stuff happened. Uh, we still don't have a fridge. The guy canceled again. My wife put this amazing little Facebook post up. Uh, so if you can find more details there. Um, so possibly by 11 or 12 weeks now, we'll have it fixed. Um, but anyways, but the point of that is it's funny. And, and God has used really you all in amazing ways to provide uh, for the very things that we need. We have four fridges at our house. <laughs> like four fridges. One of them doesn't work, um, but three are functioning fridges. Um, one of them is brand new. Uh, so it's, it's just, it's funny the way that God works. Um, but we just want to turn that back around to say, we, we just thank you all. Again, we're called to give generously of time and our talents of just all that we have. And you all have done that greatly for us. So we want to thank you for that. Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, we'll keep you updated on what happens in our household and what else goes out. But uh, there, now you know that information about us as well. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3 today. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. And uh, let me just say this before we jump in. So John Frame is a theologian, and he's done many, many things that are just uh, incredible. One of the things that he has done as, as he has examined many, many different religions is he's looked at all these different faiths, and he has said that... Um, every single religion will either worship a God who is transcendent, meaning far great and, and uh, above all things. In fact, they will often be so great that we can't even know him. He is so grand and, and so large that there's no way we can actually know him, and he is too big to know little us. Or you will believe in an imminent God, a God that is so incredibly near, like pantheism, which is like what Hindu and so many religions believe in, where the God is so near here, he is in everything. Now, this God is so near and in everything that he actually is powerless. He doesn't have enough power to meet our needs, which is why when you look at gods that are in this imminent domain, uh, those religions will also, will often worship many, many gods, like Hinduism worships like 33 million different gods. And so uh, you either have a transcendent God, which is far above everything that we can't actually know, or we have a God that is so near to us, he's the tree, he's the seats that you're sitting in, um, he's the pencil, the iPad, the Bible that you have, he is in everything, and thus he is is non-powerful. And yet when we come into the Bible, we have a God who is both. And this is the only religion where you'll, where you'll see this. He is absolutely and infinitely transcendent, rules over all things, and yet incredibly near to us as well. And we see that all throughout the gospel. We begin in the presence of God. We end in the presence of God. The whole gospel is about the presence of God coming to earth as the means in which he brings us into his presence. And so uh, when we come into the Bible, we're coming into a very unique God that we will not find in any other religion. So I just kind of want to begin by just uh, 
by starting with that this morning, because we're going to be looking at God's presence. And the reason we're doing this is we're kind of in this uh, kind of an interesting series on leadership where we're just looking at different texts throughout God's word, and we're bringing application to elders and deacons. And what we see is that there's really two positions that are given in the New Testament regarding church leadership. There are elders. Elders are those who are called to shepherd the church through the proclamation of God's word. And then there are deacons. Deacons are those who, are, who meet the physical needs of the church. Both positions are absolutely necessary and integral for the functioning and the health of the church. Um, and over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that elders, through the proclamation of the word, through the equipping of the word, are called to help strengthen the church so that we would stand firm in the midst of trials. But now today, we're going to just transition and say, okay, so who can be qualified to be in church leadership? Who, who are those people? What are those qualifications? Is it intelligence, abilities, influence, resources, past success that qualifies us? And so in order to answer this question, I want us to go to Exodus chapter 3, and this is the commissioning of Moses. Uh, and in order for us to understand like what is happening here, I just want to give a quick recap of a little bit of the biblical story so we understand how do we arrive at, at Exodus chapter 3. Well, we all know in, in the beginning, God creates heaven and earth. He makes man and woman, Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve, they rebel against God. And because of that, they're removed from the very presence of God. And then in chapter 12, we see God begins to unleash his redemption plan. He chooses a man named Abram, changes his name to Abraham, and he makes a covenant with him. And he says, I am going to make you into a great nation. He's going to bring a great many people from the line of Abraham. He's going to give them a land. And this people will be a blessing to all nations. And he tells them in Genesis 15 that eventually this people, they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. And then at the end of that time, he's going to bring them into the promised land. And so the rest of Genesis is about tracing the line of Abraham. Who is this people that's going to be a blessing to all nations? And we go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Jacob's name is also, do you remember? Israel. Israel has how many sons? Twelve, which is the twelve tribes of Israel. And so the end of Genesis, it, or the, it ends with the twelve tribes, with the twelve sons taking their family, and they're going into the land of Egypt because of a great famine. And so you can only guess then what nation is going to hold them captive, slavery for 400 years? It's Egypt. And so Exodus starts 400 years after Genesis ends. And now we have the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel, they've grown in number, they're living in Egypt, and Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, he is afraid, very fearful of this Hebrew nation because they have grown so numerous. So he makes a new law and says all the Hebrew male babies are to be thrown into the Nile River. That's his population control. That's how, again, the enemy is attacking uh, the, the kingdom of God, the very purposes of God. And so what we have at that moment is Moses' parents, though, they see that he's beautiful. And when you read the, fact, the word beautiful, it's not that he's just better looking than other babies. He was just cuter than the other babies, but they believed that God had marked him for a special purpose. 
And so uh, Moses, uh, so what they do is they put him in like a little basket. They place him on the Nile River, which just sounds very strange because Nile River has crocodiles and everything else on it. So a little baby in a basket sounds like a sandwich. Um, but he basically they place him on there. And guess who finds little baby Moses? Well, it's Pharaoh's daughter, the princess. And, of course, she needs someone to raise baby Moses. So who does she choose? She chooses Moses' mother. You can just see great, the God's grace in all of this situation. So now you have Moses, a Hebrew, raised as an Egyptian in the royal court, trained just as all their royalty would be. He knows their customs. He knows everything about them. And then at age 40, though, he knows he's a Hebrew. He's been taught the promises of God. He sees a taskmaster beating um, a, a Hebrew. And so he goes down to the Hebrew's defense, and he ends up killing the Egyptian. And at this moment in Acts chapter 7, we're told that he's trying to now all of a sudden begin to free Israel. He believes that he is God's person to bring them out of Egypt. But at this point... Israel's not so convinced of this, and they do not follow him. In fact, the next day, some of the people say, well, who do you think you are? Why would we follow you? Um, and so all of a sudden, Moses realizes Israel's not following him. Now he's killed an Egyptian, and so he's now a, a, a rebel against the Egyptian government. And so now he's wanted by them. So he goes off into the wilderness for 40 years where he becomes a shepherd. So now he's 80 years old. He's a shepherd. He's a murderer and, um, and a rebel starter in Egypt. And this is where we pick up the story uh, of Moses in chapter 3. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and stand. And we, uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. We stand here. The reason we do this is because God's word comes to us through the inspiration of the Spirit. And this is just a physical means in which we remind ourselves of the authority and importance of this word. Here we go. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame and a fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold... The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you 
that I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Let's pray. Father, Father, we come to you right now and we just praise you. We praise you that you are God, that you are transcendent, that you rule over all things, that you are powerful, you are infinite in every way, and yet you are also near to us. You know us. You're with us. You strengthen us. And ultimately, you have given us grace through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we come to your word right now, I just pray, give us wisdom to know your word. Give us Give us understanding, and Lord, strengthen our faith. May we know that if we have believed in you, your presence is in us, empowering us and strengthening us, that we would go boldly every single day, representing you in how we speak and how we act and how we live. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So the first thing, just kind of want to bring to our attention, is that God uses people to accomplish his purposes. And that might sound just kind of um, not too amazing, but if you just think about it, we have a God who can do all things, and he uses us. He uses people to accomplish his purposes, and we see this all throughout God's word. Here we have Moses. He's on Mount Horeb, which is also uh, the area of Mount Sinai. And he sees a bush, it's burning, but it's not being consumed. He goes to it, God speaks to him, he reveals who he is. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The very one your, mo- your, your mom told you about. The very promises, the very reason why you thought you were leaving, leading a rebellion, you know, 40 years earlier. And in verse 8, God says, um, or in verse 7 and 8, he says, I have heard the affliction um, and the cries of my people. I know their sufferings. So he says, I am going to deliver them. That's what we read in verse 8. He says, I have come down to deliver them. So the question is, how is God going to deliver his people? What is he going to do? How does he bring them out? Well, the answer is in verse 10, where he says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh. The means in which God will deliver his people is through Moses. Now just remember, Moses is how old at this point? 80 years old. Just real quick, your age does not qualify you or disqualify you from being used by God. So if you're, you're really young here and you're like five years old, I don't know, do, do our five-year-olds go downstairs? Five-year-olds go to Six? I don't know. Whatever's after kindergarten, whatever, however old a first grader is. If you're in here and you're in first grade, God can use you in amazing and powerful ways. And if you have just had your 93rd birthday, uh, she's here, uh, God is using you in amazing and incredible ways. Age does not qualify or disqualify us. Um, And what we see here is that God uses people, and it's not because God needs us. No, again, he's infinite in every way. When God speaks, he is powerful and can bring about whatever it is that he wants, but he uses us. He chooses to use us that we would know him and that we would enjoy him and glorify him as he works in us. And uh, so what we're going to see here is why he chooses Moses. But first of all, what we're not going to see... He does not choose Moses because Moses is raised as a Hebrew raised Egyptian. He doesn't choose Moses because he knows the Egyptian language and the customs. He doesn't choose Moses because anything that Moses has in and of himself, because of his possessions, because of what he has accomplished. I mean, easily, 
we can make the argument he's really the best guy qualified. He's a Hebrew, and he knows all the customs of the Egyptians, right? He knows the language, the perfect missionary to go in. But God will not use any of that as a reason for why Moses is chosen. So we go and we ask the question, what does qualify Moses? And we're going to see that God's presence is what qualifies Moses to lead God's people. Verse 12, God says, but I will be with you. I just want you to think about that. That's why. Why can Moses go to the country that he was previously wanted for rebellion and murder? Because of God's presence. Why can Moses go to the people who were not willing to follow him last time and think that they will follow him this time? Because of God's presence. Why can Moses go to the most powerful nation on earth at this time and threaten the Pharaoh with plagues of God only because of God's presence? Uh, there's, a, there's a neat professor, Ryan Lister, who's a, a, a professor over at Portland Sem- or at Western Seminary in Portland. And he said this, writing about the presence of God and in this text. He says, The call and demands that God places on Moses cannot be accomplished by Moses, but can be achieved only by the presence of God with Moses. Do you get that? Moses doesn't have a prayer. He's not going to be able to do this. But he can because God is with him. Moses is greatly used by God. And we're going to get into that more later. But what I want to just remind you and encourage you, God dwells with every single believer. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, then know that God is in you and with you right now. And it's on the basis of his presence that you're qualified to be used by God. That's what we need to understand here. That's why Moses is chosen. Um, now notice what happens yet, though. Moses, in the text, is not quite ready to be used by God. He has doubts. His sin wants to doubt or deny the sufficiency of God's presence in his life. If you remember, last week we were talking about how trials work. Trials often make, want to make our sin, make our fears look big, so that then God would what? He would look small. And we use the example of my hand in Mount Rainier. Mount Rainier stands at north of 14,000 feet. But if I put my hand right in front of my face and I go, I can't see Mount Rainier anymore, obviously my hand is bigger than the mountain. Now that's foolish and we all laugh and go, oh yes, that's right, but it's just perspective, right? But that's what sin wants to do all the time. It wants us to think that this is actually the right perspective and our fear Our sin is much greater than our God. And when that happens, we will not think his presence is either with us or sufficient to help us. And so Moses is going to give some excuses here. And we're just going to kind of run through them quickly. Uh, In verse 11, he basically says, look, I'm not qualified. Who am I to go? And to which God answers, I will be with you. Moses then in verse 13 kind of says, well, I'm not really a leader. I don't even know how to, how to answer their questions. And he says, what am I to do if they ask who sent me? To which God then says, you will tell them I am who I am has sent you. You will tell them the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent you. And then in verses 14 through 18, God gives them this vision that he is to go give them about the land that they're going to be going into. Chapter 4, verse 1, Moses says, But I'm not convincing. They won't believe me. 
to which then God gives him three miracles. He says, okay, Moses, throw your staff down. Do you remember this? He throws the staff down and turns into a snake. He then says, pick it up. Yeah, I don't know if I would do that. Um, but then he picks it back up and he turns it back into a staff. He says, put your hand into your coat. He pulls it out. It's now leprous. It's diseased. God says, put it back in. He puts it back in and pulls it out. It's all clean and perfect. He then says, and then um, if they won't believe those ones, you go take water from the Nile. And when you take it and you pour it out, it will turn into blood. And so God gives them all of these signs. But then Moses says, chapter 4, verse 10, I'm really not that eloquent. He says, I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Now I just want you to remember, where was Moses trained? In the schools of Egypt. In the royal palace. There's no way he is slow of speech and tongue. But what does God say? God says, I made your mouth, and I will be with your mouth to teach you what to speak. So a couple things there. One, God says, I know everything about your mouth. I gave you a mouth, and it's for a purpose. And you don't have to really worry about the message, because I'm going to give you the message. And he says, I'll be with your mouth. So not only is it my message, but I'll be with you and in you giving you that giving that message now now we get to the truth which i just love verse 13 because i think we've all been at chapter 4 verse 13 where moses says i don't want to go and you you almost have to say it with a little bit of whininess i don't i don't want to go you know like you got to think he's wrestling here and he says just send someone else which then god says look I actually have already got your brother Aaron, and he's on the way, and he's going to help you, and you will speak to Aaron, and Aaron will speak. But again, he says in verse 15, I will be with your mouth. So just think about it. Moses is um, wrestling with God at this moment. He's wrestling with his faith. He's wrestling, do I believe God? And what is the answer that God gives from the first question that Moses has to the last question I'll be with you I'll be with you I'll be with you that's his that's his answer the entire time he says I will give you grace how do you and I receive the grace of God through his presence every time it's through his presence and notice with every objection God never points Moses's attention to his own human capacities he never says, Moses, be more self-confident. Moses, you've got this. Moses, you're enough. You can do this. Never once. Now just think about the way you encourage one another, the way we, we all encourage one another. How often do we say, look, you can do this. Look, you know you can do this. Look, you are strong enough. How often do, do we go that way? But notice what God says. He says, I'll be with you. Look, the lies of the world always want to direct us to ourself. It'll always say, you're enough. You don't need God. You don't need others. You have everything in you that you need. You are strong enough. You are sufficient. And that is a lie from hell. And there's two ways we can answer that, just from God's word, in many ways. Um, but we'll give two. One, we're made in God's image. God's not made in our image, but whose image are we made in? God. So we're designed in every part of our body, our life, our soul, to be dependent upon God. Because we're made in his image, meant to reflect him. 
Secondly, if you just look at the gospel, if you and I are sufficient, why do we need the gospel? The gospel is about God sending his son to earth to die on a cross that he would stand in your place and my place to absorb the wrath of God, pay the penalty of your sins and my sins, because you and I, we can't. We're not sufficient. We have no hope of absorbing God's wrath. So we have the fact that we're made in God's image. We have the gospel and a million other truths all throughout God's word that tell us you and I are not sufficient in in and of ourselves. The only reason we can be used, the only reason we can do incredible things for God is by God's presence in us. That's why Moses is qualified. And this is nothing new. We see this all throughout scripture. So let me just give a couple of examples. If you remember, Moses ends up not actually bringing them into the promised land. A guy named Joshua brings Israel into the promised land. And, you, and when Joshua is being commissioned, this is what God says to him. And the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. So why can Joshua be strong and courageous? Why can he bring them in? Because of God's presence. If you go to the, the, um, the book of Judges, and you go to the story of Gideon, it takes place in chapter 6. It's this really just incredible story where Gideon is, um, he's threshing wheat at this time. The Israelites are under, um, under the rule of the Midianite right now, the Midianite army, and this is just a, a huge army. And Gideon is threshing wheat. Now, normally when you thresh wheat, you would stand kind of on on a hill and you'd be beating the wheat so the wind would catch and blow the chaff away. But we're told that Gideon is in a wine press hiding. And, And God will come to him and says, Oh, great and mighty valor or great and mighty warrior Gideon, um, which is just totally ironic because of what he's doing at this moment. And God's going to say, I'm going to use you, which he says, look, my tribe is the least, or my family is the least. I'm the least person in my family. Like I'm the smallest, most, uh, most nobody in all of Israel. And this is then what God says. And the Lord said to him, I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Why will Gideon, this fearful person, be used in a great and mighty way to free the people of Israel? It has nothing to do with him and all about God's presence. When Jeremiah is called, Jeremiah is one of the prophets in the Old Testament, wrote the book Jeremiah. And if you go read about his commissioning in chapter 1, this is what we read. It sounds very similar to Moses. It says, now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. So we got Moses, who's 80, Jeremiah, who's just this young runt. And God says, uh, but the Lord said to me, do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. Declares, do you see the pattern? Everyone God uses, he's with. And what qualifies them? God's presence. Why is it that they can do what God has called them to do? God's presence. It's all his grace. This is what he does for else. 
And, and he, he places, he's placing Moses, he plays Gideon, he plays Jeremiah. He's placing them in situations where all of a sudden they become aware of their weaknesses and their inabilities and their sins and their fears are becoming apparent. And they're saying, but God, I can't do this. And so what is God doing at this moment? He's saying, exactly, you can't do this. Stop looking at yourself and trust in me. Look to me, trust that I am with you. And that's the very same thing that God does with you and me. He will place us in trials so that we would learn in our, well, our weaknesses, our limitations, our fears, and our sins would be exposed. So that we would stop looking at ourselves, trusting in ourselves, thinking that somehow we are the answer to the problem, and that we would trust in God. That's what we see in Scripture. And so if you're going through something right now, if you're in a trial at this moment, whether it's at work, at home, finances, whatever the trial is, we know that God is in control of it. We know that he's working in it for our good. We know that he's seeking to strengthen our faith. And one of the ways that that happens is first he exposes the weaknesses. He exposes our fears. He exposes areas that we're not trusting in his presence. We're not trusting in his grace. And he's bringing these trials in us so that we would stop looking towards ourselves. We would look at the truths of God's word and we would trust in God. So I just want to encourage you, wherever you're at right now, God's just redirecting you from yourself to looking at the very presence of God, the very truths of who we see God is through his word. In fact, um, many of you know Philippians 4.13. Like it's one of those coffee cup verses, right? I think we've done enough coffee cup stuff. You all know you should never have one of those coffee cups. Um, No, it's fine if you do. Just don't don't drink out of it. Um, But Philippians 4.13 is like one of those coffee cup verses where it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, you know, you're you're getting ready for your mile. You know, you're you're running in the morning, and you're going to go run your five-minute mile. So you you grab your Philippians 4.13 cup, and you're like, I can do it because God is in me. And you drink your coffee, and you go run it because that's what it means, right? Those are the weird ways that we often construe those um, verses. We take them out of context, so that's why I make fun of them. Um, But what's amazing about this passage, like Philippians 4.13, where God says, where Paul says, look, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. What he's saying, he's saying, I have learned to be content in every single circumstance that 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 I am in. He says, whether I have much or I have need, whether I have food or whether I have hunger, I have learned to be content. Why is he content? Well, he uses the word because God strengthens me. But how do we receive God's grace? Through his presence. So another way of just looking at this passage is Paul is saying, look, I can do everything because Christ dwells within me. I can be faithful in all circumstances because God is in me. I can be content in every circumstance because God strengthens me because he dwells within me. That's what he is teaching us. That's what he's teaching Moses. That's what he taught Gideon and Joshua and Jeremiah and us today through his word. And so I want to remind you of the truth that God's presence is given to every single person who believes in Jesus Christ. So if you're here and you've trusted in Jesus, then know this, you have the Spirit of God in you. You see, here in Exodus, we see that Moses, is he's given God's presence, he's given the Spirit of God as a means of leading God's people. Now in the Old Testament, 
um, the, people of, the people of Israel had a different experience of the Spirit of God than what we do in the New Testament. There's a lot of debate on this. Some theologians will say, look, they didn't have the Spirit of God at all. Some will say they just had a very limited experience, which is where I would fall. They would say they had a, a limited understanding and dwelling of the presence of God. This is why in Numbers 11.29, Moses says he looks forward to the day that all of God's people would experience the presence of God. He looks forward to the day where everyone will be able to experience the Spirit as he is experiencing it, and I believe even more through Jesus Christ. So the hope is that one day all of God's people will experience a fullness of his Spirit. Well, that comes through Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes, uh, we have lots of texts that talk about it, but Jesus, when he's preparing his disciples for the time that he's going to be crucified and then be taken up to the right hand of God where he is right now, he says this, John 14, verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. He's referring to the Holy Spirit. To be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. When you trust in Jesus Christ, you are given the spirit of God. He dwells in you. And all throughout the New Testament, we see what the spirit does. He he forms us, the church, into the very temple of God. In Ephesians, we read that the Spirit dwells in us. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. He's, He's the seal of our redemption. The reason we know we can have confidence that we will uh, be with God forever in the new heavens and new earth is because the Spirit dwells within us now. In Romans 8, we're told that he searches our hearts. He intercedes for us. We're told that we have unlimited access to God. In Romans 8, it also talks about that through the power, the presence of the Spirit in us, that's how we overcome sin. So the sins that we wrestle with, anger, rage, lust, so many of the sins that we have, impatience, All are overcome through the presence of the Spirit who is given to us because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I I just encourage you and ask you, have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you know that Jesus has come as the Son of God to die and pay the price for your sins and three days later he's risen from the grave and that you've believed in him because of that you have now received his Spirit who's working powerfully in you preparing you for the day that he returns. If you know that, then know that you have the Spirit of God in you today, right now, working in you. And what we understand is that God's presence is what fuels the Christian life. It's what makes the Christian life possible. If you remember uh, Jesus in Matthew 28, before he ascends to the right hand of the Father, he turns to his disciples, basically to the church, and he's saying to them and to us, And he says the Great Commission, where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Do you remember that? So that's that's the mission that we have. That's why every, every Sunday morning I'll stand up here and I say, the hi, my name is Nick Jackson, the pastor of Timberline Baptist Church. Our mission is to... Make disciples who make disciples, which we pull directly from Matthew 28. We're not very um, creative here. We're pretty original. We just take things from the word. Uh, So the mission we have is to make disciples who tell other people about Christ. That's what we're called to do. 
We're called to tell people that they are sinners. They're under the wrath of God. That only by trusting in Jesus will they be forgiven and saved. And that's a hard message to sometimes to communicate. Because we want to make sure when we communicate that we're still friends, right? Or at least we think that. But that's hard. Sometimes it's not. When we tell people, look, you're a sinner under the wrath of God. That's going to confront people, and sometimes it's going to cost us our friendships. Sometimes it's going to cost us our family. Sometimes it's going to cost us our finances, like our jobs, which is other things. But we see, all, we see, that, we see the truth of it in the New Testament, the cost of it. All throughout the life and history of the church, we see the cost, where Christians are persecuted and sometimes killed for the proclamation of the gospel. We talked about earlier this year, one of the pastors that we support in India, all of his things were taken out of his, out of his house. They were thrown outside the village. The house was broken down, and they said to him and his family, don't ever come back. And we, we prayed um, and supplied the need for, just this last week, one of the other missionaries that we support, where he's having a prayer meeting. People come in. They, he gets arrested after he's beat, been beaten and rocks have been thrown at him. There's been destruction that's taken place. There's a cost to the faith, right? Now, in America, sometimes it feels a little different because of just some of the things that have happened here. But there's a cost. And so the, the question we could say is, how are we to do this? How is it we're to proclaim this message? Because maybe I'm okay and I can say, look, I can risk my life for the gospel. But at the sake of the gospel, are you willing to risk your kids' lives? Are you willing to risk your wife, your spouse, those whom you love? At that point, we might say, oh, I don't know. And that's where sometimes people say, well, I don't think it's very safe for us to go into missions right now. As if it's ever safe to go into missions. And so we can wrestle with and say, okay, well, what does it mean? How am I supposed to do this message? How do we proclaim it? And, the, and this is where we're going to have this battle of faith, like Moses, where our fears are coming, and what sin, remember, what sin wants to do, it wants to place our fears in front of us so they look big. And we say, I, don't, I, I can't do that. I'm, sh- I'm scared of sharing the gospel with my boss for what might happen. I'm scared of sharing the gospel at work because of what might happen. I don't know that I want to share the gospel or invite my, my neighbor to church because what if it makes things tense? How am I supposed to shepherd my wife? How am I supposed to shepherd the kids? How are we supposed to submit to our husbands? How are children supposed to joyfully obey their parents and all this? And we can wrestle with how are we to do these very things that God calls us to do? And that's where we have the very last line of Matthew 28, where in verse 20 he says, And lo and behold, what? I am with you always to the end of the age. That's how we do it. The way we go make disciples, the way we represent our king, the way we honor our husbands, honor our wives, honor our children, the way we are witnesses at our work, it's not by looking inward and saying, Do I have this? Am I enough? But it's by turning away from ourselves and trusting in the very grace of God who dwells in us and saying, by his grace, I can be obedient. By his grace, I can be faithful. By his strength that is in me, he will supply all the needs that I have that I can represent my king on this earth. 
And we have passages all throughout the New Testament and the Old talking to us about God's presence. Let me just give two. Hebrews 13, 5. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. How do you fight the lust of money? How do you fight the desire just for, um, for advancement? Not that it's wrong to have money, not that it's wrong to be advanced, but for that desire, that lust of just possessions and power and prestige. How is it that we combat that? Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's where our contentment comes from. It's knowing that he is within us. Romans 8, 31, God's, um, Paul says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, meaning God is for us, with us, in us, has justified us, and is keeping us in the faith, and promises, the rest of Romans 8 says, and there is nothing that can separate us from his love, meaning from his presence, what do we need to fear? What we need to do on a regular daily basis, just every day, we're waking up, we're coming into the word of God and saying, God, help me to trust in you. Help me to trust that you are with me and in me, that I would be able to obey the very commands of your word. Not not looking at myself and saying, I can do it because I'm strong, because I'm just hard-nosed enough, because I'm determined, because I have a stronger will than you but because of God's presence in us. Every day, that ought to be our prayer. When we come in, gather with the church, Lord, help me not to be divisive, but Lord, may I trust in your presence. When I'm out in the workplace, Lord, help me to be faithful. Help me to be kind. Help me to be a good witness. How? Because you are with me. And may we find peace and contentment in the very indwelling presence of God. So now, to bring this all the way back to to elders and deacons. We haven't forgot about it. Who are those who are called to lead within the church? Well, first qualification would just be that they have the presence of God. That's what we're looking for, is that people would have the presence of God. And that's, what we're, that's where we come and see God's word. All those who are called to lead God's people have been given the very presence of God. It doesn't matter on your age. You can be young, You can be old. Do you have God's presence? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And really, we would say for for everything that we do, we're looking for people to help within our table groups, within our children's ministry, within various means. The one thing that every person who stands before the people of God, they need is the presence of God. That's what we're looking for. That's because that's what God's word talks to us about. And I want to encourage you, you have been given the spirit of God that you would be used by God for the advancement of the kingdom. If you have the spirit, it's so that you would serve and advance the kingdom. So the question is not, does God want me to serve? No, he does. He wants you to serve in and outside. The question is, where are you serving? In and outside the church, where are you serving? There is no such thing as sideline Christianity. God doesn't save someone and say, why don't you just sit over here for a while and watch? So if you're there right now and you're just kind of like, that is where I'm at, I'm just kind of on the sidelines. What we would love more than anything is to have the conversation with you and how do we move everyone together so that we're just working and serving the body in and outside the church. 
And some of those positions might be elders. They might be deacons. They might be a million other things, whether they're in or out. But the first thing, above all, we just say, do we know Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? And so that's what I would encourage you. Do you know Christ? And if you do know that he has died and risen, he is your king, then know this. You have the Spirit of God in you. You are not sufficient, but God in you is to do whatever it is he calls you to do. Whatever it is. So the question is, is where are you serving? And I promise you this. If you're a believer, he's working in your heart right now that you would begin questioning, what am I doing inside the church? What am I doing outside the church? And so I just want to encourage you to be praying those ways. Let's pray, and then we're going to take communion. Father, we come to you. And, re- and the reason we come to you is because you sent your son Jesus to come to earth, that he would be with us, that he would be Emmanuel, that he would die on the cross, he would rise again three days later, and we know that right now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that now he has given us his Spirit. And the reason we can pray is because your Spirit dwells in us, that you would take our prayers, interceding for us, and bringing them to the Father. Everything about the Christian life is about you dwelling within us. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would be encouraged today. We are not qualified because of the way we look, because of our accomplishments in this world, but because of your son, Jesus. And, Lord, I pray that every single one of us would just be willing to take the steps of serving within and outside the church for the advancement of your kingdom. And, Lord, as we partake of communion right now, may this be a celebration that, Lord, you have come with us. You have come to us in the flesh as the promise and the hope that we know that there is a day coming where you will return again and we will physically live with you forever in a new heavens and new earth. And we long for that day. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. I want to go ahead.